Welcome to the Modern Mexico Podcast. I'm your host, Nathaniel Parrish. On today's episode of the podcast, we're talking about nearshoring. We're also going to dive into a broader discussion about Mexico's image right now. On the one hand, tech and manufacturing executives are optimistic about Mexico's manufacturing potential. But on the other hand, Republican politicians in the U.S. are loudly calling for military intervention in Mexico and pointing at the record levels of violent crime in Mexico as a problem. So right now we see some pretty wild extremes when it comes to coverage of Mexico in the U.S. Uh, We see positive news stories such as Tesla's announcement of a new $10 billion factory they plan to build in the industrial hub of Monterey, but we also see stories about negative trends and incidents such as the recent kidnapping and murder of several American tourists who were visiting a city in northern Mexico. So I think that this disconnect can be summarized by recent comments from political risk analyst Ian Bremmer and U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham. Bremmer recently visited Mexico and came away gushing about Mexico's potential to emerge as a nearshoring hub. But Lindsey Graham and other Republican politicians are much less optimistic about Mexico's trajectory. Here's Ian Bremmer. Who are you going to invest towards uh, if you're not investing in China? Well, Mexico in many ways is the country that stands to benefit the most outside of the United States. And indeed, in every meeting I had in three days in Mexico, um, I was hearing about nearshoring. And here's Lindsey Graham. The Mexican government uh, is no longer in charge of most of their country. It's a narco-terrorist state, and we should put on the table the tools of our military to go after these terrorists as if they were any other terrorist. It can be hard to get a sense of what's really going on in Mexico when the commentary in the news is so extreme. So we know that Mexico produced a record $106 billion worth of auto parts in 2022. And passenger vehicle exports from Mexico increased by 23% in 2022 and totaled over $31 billion. In January of 2023, Mexico was the U.S.'s most important trading partner. But... At the same time, Mexico has recorded over 140,000 murders during the administration of President López Obrador. During López Obrador's time in office, the overall level of violence in Mexico has been higher than at any time in modern Mexican history. So, on today's episode of the podcast, we're talking about these issues with Ryan Berg, the America's director at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Thanks for having me on, Nate. So we're dealing with a pretty wide-ranging topic today, and I wanted to start out by asking you, 
what three words would you use to describe Mexican President Lopez Obrador's strategy for promoting industrial development and nearshoring investment? Well, it's a great question, Nate. I think the, the three words that I would use to, uh, to describe it is state-led, publicly infused, and nationalist. Um, state-led in the sense that Lopez Obrador has talked in the past about the need to, to bring the state, even though it's inefficient and large and potentially um, unwieldy, into uh, questions of industrialization in Mexico. In fact, he's referred to it as a large elephant that you need to drag along. Uh, public in the sense that uh, he is willing to put public dollars, uh, including cost overruns, into projects that are important, projects that have generated quite a bit of controversy in the country, but projects that are nevertheless important to him because of their location, because of what they represent potentially to the southern part of the country, projects that are important for the national identity of Mexicans, uh, for many reasons, but he's been willing to, to put money into projects that are, are important to him and nationalist in the sense that uh, he really does see uh, this project uh, that he's undertaking as, as um, revitalizing Mexico and, and, and Mexicans sense of, of identity. Um, all, he has it all bundled up into uh, a, a large political and, and economic project that tends to guide most of what he does on a daily basis. Okay, interesting. So overall, what grade would you give President Lopez Obrador for his nearshoring promotion policies? Nate, I wouldn't give him a very good grade. And if I had to give it a letter grade as in like an American grading uh, style system of grading, I would give him probably a C or a C minus. Uh, I think that the nearshoring phenomenon that we've witnessed in Mexico thus far is happening more or less organically. It's, it's, it's the one immutable factor, uh, geography, that Lopez Obrador cannot, uh, that, that he cannot escape and that Mexico cannot escape. For some companies, uh, Mexico is just simply too attractive. Um, and with some of the benefits that we've seen recent pieces of legislation, such as the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, including Mexico in, uh, companies have decided to invest more uh, in the country. I would argue, however, that we would see even more inflows of foreign direct investment were it not for some of the Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador policies. And so that's why I say C minus, because I think some of the, the nearshoring that we've seen is happening in spite of Mexico's uh, public policies as opposed to because of them. Um, and, and and one of the, or a couple things that I would point to, Nate. The first is, um, exactly this nationalist policy. We've seen Mexico uh, likely in violation of the USMCA trade agreement on a number of issues, such as the issue of GMO corn, uh, Mexico wanting to ban US exports of, of GMO corn, uh, Mexico's policy on, on energy, prioritizing the state-run utility company uh, and backtracking on some of the opening to the private sector under the 2013 constitutional reform these issues have generated quite a bit of, of trade friction, in addition to the fact that Lopez Obrador has a reputation for breaking contracts, for uh, allowing politics to enter uh, some of these economic decisions. Early on in his term, he broke contracts uh, for oil and gas pipelines. That definitely made a lot of companies think otherwise uh, about investing because what it said about his ability 
to intervene in, uh, in, in the private sector. And so I would say that there, there hasn't been too concerted an effort to go after uh, private sector companies to move their supply chains. And thus most of the supply chain movement we've seen thus far is organic. It's companies deciding that Mexico is a place where they want to build resiliency and redundancy into their supply chains. Now, what does that mean in the, in the data? Well, if you look at the FDI data that, uh, that, that came out for 2022, most of the FDI in Mexico um, was companies that are already there. Companies that were already there in Mexico who understand how to operate there. If you're pot committed to the country, it makes good sense to double down on it for geographic reasons um, in an attempt to build more resiliency and redundancy into your supply chain. If you're a brand new company, and you're thinking about places to move your supply chains to get them away from the, the Asia Pacific or specifically to get them out of China, Mexico doesn't exactly look like inviting waters at this point in time, particularly because of some of the things that I, that I just mentioned. Um, the energy reforms, for example, make it very difficult for countries to meet, uh, companies rather, to meet their ambitious standards for environmental, social, and governance um, uh, metrics. Um, it makes it very difficult if you're a manufacturing company and you know you have to pay more money for energy or you won't have a, perhaps you won't have a steady supply and reliable supply of energy for manufacturing. All of these things serve as deterrents as opposed to positive lubricants of supply chain movement. Um, and so I would overall give him a C minus because there hasn't been that overly concerted effort to put the flag up at the front of the door and say, Mexico is open for business, and here's the following three to five reasons why it is. Okay, interesting. So a C minus is you know, not a very optimistic uh, assessment of Lopez Obrador's stance towards nearshoring investment. And you said something interesting, which is that you think that the nearshoring wave that is happening right now is happening in spite of Lopez Obrador and not because of him. And I know that one of the biggest issues that we see in the news right now is uh, problems with, with security issues, problems with organized crime. And I'm wondering how those issues affect the foreign companies that are operating in Mexico or looking to invest in Mexico. And so I'm wondering on a scale of one to 10, how much do security issues in Mexico affect foreign companies that are setting up nearshoring operations? It's an excellent question, Nate. Um, it's something that I didn't even get into as a potential deterrent in my previous answer, because I think that the word security is actually multifaceted here. You could have security of contract and property um, and regulatory security guarantees that this is the way that your, your company is going to be able to navigate. And that, that was essentially my previous answer. And then you could have hard physical security, which is a separate challenge entirely. And it's definitely a challenge to the movement of supply chains in the sense that a lot of the insecurity and violence questions that Mexico is currently grappling with um, it's taking place in areas where uh, some of the nearshoring uh, will ideally happen, uh, which is to say uh, it's taking place in areas where Mexico has some of its main, uh, main arteries um, of infrastructure uh, to nearshore the, these products. One thing that's so attractive about Mexico, 
obviously the geography, but it has the infrastructure too to connect itself to the United States in a way that saves about three weeks of transit time that you don't get if you have supply chains in the Asia Pacific. But what does that mean? Well, that means that Mexico uh, needs to have safe, secure, reliable highway networks and train networks up to the southern border of the United States. And what we've seen in uh, years past is that it, in fact, doesn't have um, those, those highway networks and, and train networks, uh, which will serve as, as those key arteries to uh, entering products in, into the United States. What I refer to is, is um, what some people like the Guerape Institute call uh, urban piracy. All of the highway robberies and train robberies that we see on a yearly basis in a country like Mexico. No country in the Western Hemisphere suffers from more highway and train robberies uh, other than Brazil than Mexico. Um, it's in terms of the loss of cargo, it's sometimes measured in billions of dollars. And so uh, if you have uh, two to three to four thousand incidents a year where you're losing the contents of your trailer or, or the cargo in, in the train, it's a serious deterrent factor uh, for a lot of companies thinking about the prospects of moving operations to Mexico and then using Mexico's infrastructure to get their final product to the United States. It's also, frankly, a problem for, for companies that are thinking about Mexico as an eventual, eventual consumer market, right? As Mexico continues to grow, it will not just become a, a place where things are made and goods are exported to, to wealthier countries like the United States, but it will become a consumer market itself. And we've seen in some instances how um, uh, transnational organized crime groups control uh, the, the, uh, the logistics of uh, very important uh, industries, say in Guerrero State, where uh, Coca-Cola several years ago was saying that it, as a company, they, they simply can't do distribution uh, in, in the state because it was, it was too insecure and, and many parts of that distribution network were controlled by, by, by criminal groups. Um, and so there's the deterrent factor there on the domestic level as well as Mexico gets wealthier and becomes itself a consumer country where the goods made in Mexico may in fact stay in Mexico. They might not all be exported to the United States. Okay, interesting. So just if, if you had to sum it up and, and put a number on it from, from one to 10, how much do you think those security issues actually end up affecting the companies that are operating in Mexico? I certainly think that they ebb and flow, uh, Nate. I, I think that the issue of highway robberies and train robberies don't get enough attention, certainly not the same attention that uh, is paid to, say, the, the recent incident of, uh, of uh, the abducted Americans in Matamoros, um, two of whom, unfortunately, uh, were, were killed. It certainly doesn't get that level of, of, of attention. But security overall, it's, it's at least an eight uh, or a nine when it comes to uh, being a deterrent factor to uh, moving supply chains in, into Mexico, um, be, because it it's not just about you know the human capital or or the regulatory security or the contract security, but this is this is sort of a, a final end product question, which is once you've got the goods made and they're ready for export, how in the heck do you get them securely from where they're made to their final destination? Uh, and that's a whole separate set of, of challenges. And so, uh, of course, this, this absolutely factors in, and I would say it's around an eight or a nine. Okay, so it's definitely an issue that foreign executives that are 
doing due diligence on potential investment projects in Mexico have to be aware of. Um, so I, I also wanted to ask you specifically about the, the issue of cargo truck hijacking. I know you've spoken about it a little bit so far, um, but it's something that I've been following in the news and we've seen a lot of stories. The, the drone maker DJI had one of its trucks hijacked in Mexico. There was a, uh, a car manufacturer that had a, a load of cars stolen in Mexico. There was a rock band that had all of their instruments stolen on the highway. Um, there was a major triathlon where uh, a lot of the participants sent you know, very expensive carbon fiber racing bikes on a truck to the race and the truck was stopped and stolen along the way. Um, so it's definitely something you know you see in the news when you're when you're reading about Mexico. There's a lot of incidents that kind of look sort of like something you might see in Fast and Furious of uh, gunmen in cars or trucks pulling pulling up alongside cargo vehicles, stopping them, sometimes getting into gunfights with uh, security officers who might be accompanying the trucks. Um, but Overall, the, the sheer numbers are pretty astounding. Um, according to Mexico's government's own statistics, uh, over 35,000 violent truck hijackings uh, occurred in Mexico since the start of President Lopez Obrador's administration. And there is a lot of speculation among people in the private sector that the real incidence rate is, is quite a bit higher than what's actually reported. Um, so I wanted to ask you, uh, about cargo truck hijacking in the sense that President Lopez Obrador is advocating for more economic development in Southern and Central Mexico. But one concern for potential investors is that the epicenter of the cargo hijacking problem in Mexico is actually not in the Northern border region. It's really focused in the area around Mexico City, in Mexico State, in Puebla, and in Michoacan. And uh, overall in the data, I see that over half the cargo hijackings recorded in 2022 happened in Mexico State, just outside of Mexico City. So I'm wondering, do you think that highway security is an obstacle for new investment in central Mexico? It's a great question, Nate, and I, I think those numbers are really astounding. Um, 35,000 since uh, the start of Lopez Obrador's term. We're talking about what, 20, since 2019, uh, late 2018, early 2019. Um, th th this is something, look, I'm, I'm often asked to speak to groups of corporate security officers of companies that are based in the US or Canada or Europe who are thinking about investing in Mexico or who have investments already in Mexico and they're looking to, to, to secure those. And highway robbery is always something that they wanna to talk to me about, uh, which, which leads me to believe that, that this is absolutely front and center of their concerns about continued operations in Mexico. And it's also front and center of their concerns about continued, uh, uh, the desire to uh, increase uh, the amount of investment um, going into Mexico. It's certainly going into their calculations whether they double down on Mexico as a place where they can build redundancy and resiliency in their supply chains. The problem has become 
um, so so intractable, so so difficult, and so front and center that you actually have uh, quite a few trucking companies. It's my understanding who have hired um, armed guards to accompany truck drivers, as you mentioned, to essentially defend the truck should they be um, should there be an attempted hijacking. Um, and this is where we get articles about uh, gunfights on the highway um, when there's a hijacking attempt, if, the, if it happens to be a company that's hired a, a, an armed security firm to guard the truck and its, and its contents, um, there's usually a firefight on, on the highway. It's, it's really inconceivable, um, really, if, if, if you think about the, the sheer scale of, of what's happening. And as you, you said rightly, uh, the epicenter is not actually northern Mexico, where there's quite a bit of economic activity and where the distance that final end products need to go to get to, to the U.S. is not is not as far. It's actually further south in, say, central Mexico, where uh, those goods would have to pass through areas of known insecurity on their way to the southern border uh, in the United States. And so that's an extra wrinkle here, Nate, I think, in, in all of this is... Um, Thinking about it from the perspective of developing southern Mexico is all fine and well, but having to pass through some of those areas with both highway and train links will be a very, very difficult challenge to, to surmount on top of all the other issues that come into play when we talk about developing Mexico's south. Lack of human, human um, uh, the lack of, of, of sort of human capital, the lack of infrastructure, um, all the other reasons why historically the south has been less developed than the north in Mexico. So I wanted to take a short break to remind listeners that the Modern Mexico podcast is sponsored by Nomade Tostadores. Overall, Mexico is known for producing some of the best coffee in Latin America. Total, in 2022, Mexico exported over $600 million of raw coffee beans. One of the best local roasters in Mexico City is Nomade Tostadores. Residents and visitors can sample their high-end coffee at Café Blom in Colonia Juarez or Vara Funky in Colonia del Valle. Nomade coffee can also be purchased online and shipped worldwide. Check them out on Instagram. So... I think that cargo truck hijacking is is really interesting because we have these kind of two competing narratives right now in the news where you have some really positive stories about, you know, Mexico's Mexico's boom of industrial investment and manufacturing activity and then you have very negative stories about uh the power of organized crime groups and uh the influence that organized crime groups have in many areas of the country and Sometimes there's an effort to maybe downplay or minimize the the impact that organized crime and violence have in Mexico and say, oh, well, you know, it's something that happens in rural areas, you know, in the mountains of Sinaloa or the mountains of Michoacan, but it's not something that affects, uh, you know, executives who are out to eat in, in Polanco or in Condesa in Mexico City. Um, but when it comes to cargo truck hijacking, it's a pretty clear example where uh, there's a lot of overlap between, you know, the positive and the negative trends that are occurring in Mexico. And 
I remember back in 2009, 2010, there was a pretty similar dynamic in, in foreign news coverage. And we'd see some stories lauding Mexico as an emerging industrial juggernaut and other op-eds warning that Mexico was a crumbling narco state. And there's this idea that the juxtaposition of these two tendencies uh, could be referred to as the Mexico paradox. And that was the idea that there was a paradox that Mexico's problems and potential could coexist. And I'm wondering when you look at the situation today, do you still think that the Mexico paradox framework is helpful for understanding the country's overall dynamic? question, Nate. And I, I do think that the Mexico paradox idea still has some credence to it when it comes to understanding the Mexico of 2023, um, even as it was applied to the Mexico of 2008 or 2009. There, there really are multiple Mexicos, right? There's the Mexico of incredible human talent, um, large population, uh, all of the, the talent and the diversity that we know. There's the Mexico that has had uh, multiple decades of incredibly tight economic integration and dynamism with the United States economy, hundreds of billions of dollars in foreign direct investment, and in many ways become one of the most important manufacturing hubs in the Western hemisphere. Then on the other hand, there's the Mexico, as you mentioned in the course of our conversation, of 35,000 truck jackings since the start of the Lopez Obrador administration. There's the Mexico of 30 plus thousand homicides per year, despite the fact that Mexico has about has less than half of the percent population of the United States. So there are multiple Mexicos here. And insofar as the Mexico paradox gets at the fact that a country of this scope, of this size, of this talent is always going to be a complicated place. It's a useful uh, uh, idea to bring to the table when it comes to understanding uh, Mexico in, in all of its complexities. At the end of the day, I would say that uh, what is really uh, at stake here and what is really driving a lot of things is that the one thing that neither country can change, and this, that this has been true um, uh, since the very start of bilateral relations, is that geography is immutable, right? And, and it, it's the one thing that Mexico can't change, the one thing that the United States can change. And up to this point, it's been really driving a lot of the interest in, in nearshoring is that geography is immutable. Mexico is right there. There is a long history of Mexico becoming a, a very significant economic partner for the United States, a workshop for many of its manufacturing companies. And that isn't going away, certainly not in the six year period of governance of, of, a, of, of a nationalist populist like, like Lopez Obrador. It would take a lot more to make uh, geography no longer the, the powerful link that it is now between the U.S. And, and Mexico. So in my book, I talk about this idea that Mexico is defined by three main characteristics, inequality, informality, and illegality. And I think that that lens is helpful here. We know that there are over 6 million businesses operating in Mexico and the overwhelming majority, around 90% of the total of these businesses are tiny family-owned micro-businesses. And furthermore, 
Around six out of every 10 people in Mexico work in the informal economy. So we see some big news stories right now about multi-billion dollar investments in modern new mega factories, but these modern industrial success stories are really not the main story in Mexico. In 2022, the biggest source of income from abroad was migrant remittances, not revenue for manufacturing exports. So we definitely have these handful of super successful Mexican conglomerates and big new investments from Audi, BMW, Tesla, and other companies. But I think that overall the picture in Mexico is a little bit less rosy than some nearshoring advocates are portraying. Overall, we still have a country with weak tax revenue, limited government capacity, and a relatively small cluster of robust industrial activity. So I do think that overall the recent boom in nearshoring is a positive trend, but I would also warn optimists that Mexico is not Germany or South Korea. And the overall dynamic in Mexico is a lot more complicated. So I do think that Mexico has a real chance to benefit from nearshoring, but to do that, the country needs an ambitious industrial development strategy. And that's pretty much been totally absent during the Lopez Obrador administration. I think that a lot of commentators in the news are focusing on Mexico's problems and other people are talking about Mexico's potential. But I think, uh, you know, we can talk about both things at the same time and maybe refer to that as the as the Mexico paradox. So overall, Ryan, I just want to say thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. It was really interesting to hear your perspective. Nate, thanks so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. I wanted to take a short break to remind listeners that Mexico is the world's number one beer exporter. Within Mexico, however, the beer industry is dominated by two international beer giants, the companies that produce Corona and Dos Equis. Over the last decade, however, a niche market for locally produced craft beers has emerged in Mexico. And one of the best brands of cerveza artesanal in Mexico is Minerva, which is produced in Guadalajara. Visitors and locals can sample Minerva's beer at the El Deposito chain of craft beer stores in Mexico City. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Mexico Podcast. If you like what you heard on the podcast today, Check out my book, Searching for Modern Mexico, which is available on Amazon. The next episode of the Modern Mexico podcast is coming soon. Until then, hasta luego, amigos. Mm-hmm.